very much about how I'm driven. I have a vision for something that I want to experience and I will go hard out to achieve that thing. And your points around it maturing definitely changes. We've got two kids now. So whereas it was scuba diving, elite strength and conditioning, how's, how do I be the best I, that I, at what I do in the world and, and reach that level of representing or being part of an international competition for Great Britain to now being at a point of going, what do we want life to look like as a family? In today's show, we're joined by the wonderful Tim Stevenson, an entrepreneur, health enthusiast and advocate for living to the fullest. Today, we'll dive deep into the roles we play in life and the art of setting up a successful business, especially if you're unemployable like we both are. Tim will also share his top three exercises for maintaining optimal shoulder health and the philosophy behind embracing freedom in many, many forms. So get ready to be motivated and empowered as we uncover the keys to success and fulfillment with the one and the only Tim. So man, let's start with um, a kind of an obvious question. Where did your interest in the human body start? Like, when do you first remember thinking like, actually, that's fucking fascinating the way that works? That's a good question to start off with. So I'd always played sport. I'd always um, been active as a kid. Rugby was my kind of the, the sport that I played growing up. Um, and I, the, answer, the short answer to that question is when I properly got into training when I was in Australia. So I've kind of strength trained a little bit through the years as a young rugby player. Not like, I don't think to the way that people do now. Gym culture wasn't such a big thing when I was kind of, I mean, 42 years old. It was a while ago when I was playing junior rugby. But we got into the gym training kind of culture and scene more when I was in Australia working as a scuba diving instructor. And I mean, you spend a lot of time with your shirt off. So it only makes sense that you should do a lot of bench press, mm -hmm. um, like quite literally beach weights. So we trained a lot. I say we, there's my friend that I was living with in Sydney at the time. So we trained a lot while we were there. And I came back and was like, I just loved it. I loved the gym. And I think part of the opportunity that I kind of, became aware of was that I wasn't good enough as an athlete to play the sport that I wanted to at a high level. I was I'm not a big person. I was never going to be an elite rugby player. But the opportunity that I've recognized within strength and conditioning essentially was to do something that I loved from a physical preparation, training mindset perspective around kind of like just how good can you make the human body to be able to perform in the sport. And I had a long kind of coaching background to support that. So it was the marrying really of two things that got really interesting in training plus done a lot of coaching over the years and originally wanted to do sports science at university but ended up choosing business um was kind of swayed down that route in a way of going you're actually going to have more options if you do a business degree when you come out the other side of it even though i wanted to do sport so it was it kind of it came to a point where i knew what i wanted to do i knew what i wanted to do from a sports perspective as an as an athlete i knew what i wanted to do from an academic perspective none of those two things happened and then i found myself in a situation where i actually then could do a strength and conditioning internship with a company called Sport 981, who I was, I was ended up working with um, off the back of that. So it, it was very much just a kind of a, a, a almost serendipitous amalgamation of lots of things in my life that came together, created an opportunity, and then just dived into it and just like fell in love with it, of just starting to explore how we can start to maximize human performance. Nice. So many places I want to jump in there. Um, <laughs> what, what took you to Oz to do the, um, the easy question first? Um, my business and management degree they're often structured or they're all structured in a sense of they help you to survive in the corporate environment. I didn't want to go into corporate. So a lot of my friends went off to PwC and uh, HP and on grad schemes. And I was like, that doesn't sound like that much fun. I want to go and explore a little bit. So I went to Australia to do my scuba diving 
instructor qualifications, I could already dive at the point, realize that I could probably get paid to go and see the world, live abroad a little bit, wasn't really ready to go down the sensible grown-up route of getting a proper job and working in London. So went off to Australia, did the internship there, essentially, and then they offered me a job off the back of it. So I was in Sydney for all in all about a year, and I went up to Queensland coast, did the Cairns piece for a period of time as well, but um, and then went to Zanzibar off the back of that. So I did a year in the Indian Ocean as well. So then you realize after a while, you're like you see, you start to pe- meet people that have been in the scuba diving for five, ten years, and they're like, oh, I can't do anything else. They can't get a different job. So I, I like jumped off before it got too late, and I got labelled as a permanent beach bomb. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, so I was doing ski season. It's exactly the same kind of thing. It's like, oh, when you've done. 15 of these seasons in a row there's something like romantic about that lifestyle where it's yeah. like okay yeah i'm a sailing instructor in the summer or a dive instructor in the summer then like um skiing in a season and yeah in the winter and it's just like it's romantic but like there comes a point where like uh, i should probably earn some money where i can feed myself adequately as well yeah i mean that was a very that was a decision for me i was torn between going to my windsurf instructor qualifications and my scuba diving and i went to an open day it was like here are your two options and they were like, as a windsurfing instructor, you can expect to earn £25 a day. As a diving instructor, you can earn £110 a day. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the diving instructor. That seems like a better option. Makes sense. <laughs> so like, everyone I seem to interview on this podcast has this like pull between, am I going to do something that is very me and kind of athletic and some sort of like inherent pursuit? And then the kind of the business side of it as well. Even when I was talking to like um, Nicola Sherman, who's um, a ski mountaineer and um, incredible skier, it's like, how do I marry these things together? And do you have the the voice in there that's like, oh, I don't want to go down the like PwC, so like the Mm. big, um, the kind of corporate world like process. Like, what was turning you off from that? Oh, this is a nice rabbit hole. Uh, I would say that I recognize in myself that I am a a massive nonconformist. So if I get told what to do, I'm going to do the other thing. So it was, I just don't want to do the same as what everybody else is doing. So, and and (laughs) I laugh about that character trait that I have about myself because it's, it's even things like adopting brands. Like I'd rather not adopt the mainstream brand and do something different and go and find my own brand that no one knows about because that makes me feel like I'm not conforming because I don't want to be the same as everybody else. So I think it originally started from being like, well, you're all good on grad schemes. I don't want to do that. And then you start taking yourself down that non-conformist route and you find yourself in a situation where you're scuba diving instructor in Zanzibar and you're like then you go wonder how am I going to get back from this I'm kind of gone I've gone way out yeah exactly and and I think then that then comes into why do you want to be self-employed well I don't want someone to tell me what to do so if I have my own business I make my own rules essentially um and I think it, it it stems from that the curiosity of challenge like can you do that thing the more time you spend in business you the rose tinted spectacles of what it's like to be an entrepreneur start to fade and you realize how difficult it actually is and that it's that stuff of that continuous opportunity to test yourself to challenge yourself to go through i mean i i find it interesting the the way the world is at the moment with um, resilience training and i'm like okay like if your if your life that you've constructed is not difficult enough in terms of you're not creating enough challenge in your life there's a question i'm not saying it's an entire solution but you can actually like just by the decisions that you make you can find resilience training just through 
bigger things. I don't need to get an ice bath to prove my resilience to myself. It might help as part of that. But I find that that's just an interesting kind of place there to go down that route of creating your own rules, having a dream of the lifestyle that you want to live. Um, and can you manifest that for yourself on your own rules? Because the reality is you're going to get paid by someone else to do it is they own your time. And then they are the ones that are ultimately profiting off your expertise and efforts. There's a lot in there. I don't know where I went with that all over left, right. And then back to the middle. I was, I was smiling throughout it. Cause like that nonconformist thing, like it, that is so me. And the example you gave of like, not um, <laughs> of, of, of buying brands that are different just for the sake of buying a brand that is different. Um, that is me all over. And yeah. Harriet would have, yeah, when she hears this, she'll go, yeah, that is exactly <laughs> you too. Um, you mentioned your vision there and like you have this kind of idea of success. Now, I know personally and through working with thousands of people now that that vision, it starts off so naive. And it starts off like, oh, I want this kind of thing. For me, it was like, I'm going to work X number of hours and like travel every single day and that kind of stuff. And it's kind of, it's matured as it's gone. Like, what did you have, how did that vision start? And like, how's it matured as you've, you've gone on? Like, what have you sacrificed from it? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the overriding thing for me within all of that is that, and it, it probably encapsulates, it's actually kind of borrowed this phrase from a company called Altus, which is some work, they do like sprints and speed track training in, in the States, American company. And it's like doing cool things in cool places with cool people. Like that's kind of, I'm very much an experiential type person. So what is it like to go and work as a scuba diving instructor? Like it's pretty cool, turns out. Like to have that experience to then, um, to build that, that sort of vision, then it, again, it, it's, it, it is very much around like that would be a cool thing to do. So let's go and explore what that might look like. So getting into Paralympic sport as a strength and conditioning coach, I worked in the London um, arena in a sense in terms of in sport at that time around the 2012 Paralympic Games, had four athletes that competed there, worked with four athletes that competed. And I came off the back of it and I was like, I want to go to, I want to be part of the Rio 2016 team. I want to experience what it's like to do to go, what it's like to go to a games. That's not easy as a strength and conditioning coach because typically our work is done in that week before they get on the plane and then they go. So not many opportunities to go and get into the village and experience a competition environment. So I put a lot of effort and time and commitment into putting myself in a position where I could get selected for a game. So there was still a certain amount of chance um, and uh, luck, a sense, in being in the right place, the right team to get selected. So that then manifested itself in 2016 as running the holding camp in Belo Horizonte for the games and then getting selected with the British swimming team to go into the village and do the 10-day competition, like dream come true. And I think that's that probably is, is very much about how I'm driven. I have a vision for something that I want to experience and I will go hard out to achieve that thing. And your points around it maturing definitely changes. We've got two kids now. So whereas it was scuba diving, elite strength and conditioning how's how do i be the best i that i at what i do in the world and, and reach that level of representing or being part of a, an international competition for great britain to now being at a point of going what do we want life to look like as a family as i hit 42 43 years old and going well that now just it does mature and it changes and the, the experiences that i want are no longer about necessarily my own success and what I want to achieve but what we as a family want to experience achieve and what I want to be able to help my kids to to experience so that their eyes are broadened and opened and they can also be non-conformists because they've had that exposure to a variety of things in their lives which means that they don't feel blinkered or 
tunneled into any certain way of doing anything. Yeah. What, uh, what personal aspects of, of that have you had to shift? Like, cause you, you mentioned there is like, it sounds like it was what you could make for your own life. And then it's come to a, the kind of a, a family pursuit. Like how have you, like what things did you have to let die as you went down that route and that have ultimately proved to be beneficial? So I think one of the things about having kids that I didn't really appreciate before is it's, it's actually a really, um, this is going to sound strange, but it's quite a selfless thing. Like it, you shift everything from being about what I want and what I want to achieve. And all of a sudden you've got little people that you're responsible for. And now everything is actually about like, how do I support them? And how do I, how do you make, how do I make my Jack, my little boy is six. So he's at a great age. But it's like, how do I help him to become a better person and better man than I am, essentially? What can I give him? And, and how do I build on my experiences that I've had in my life to support him to continue to sort of to grow and develop and have do other impactful things in the world? So I think it's very much less now about the experiences that, that I want. So business now for me, you know, some people will be driven by building a, a huge corporation or having like a super successful financial business. I'm because of my my tendency and um, bias, I suppose, towards experiences. I don't want to spend time with my kids, and I want to offer them great experiences, and I want to build a business which allows us to be able to do those things. Because what I know, if I've seen it from various people we spent time with, from family, and you, you see what the cost is of building a big business, and you can't have all those things you can't have a really close relationship with your kids and with your spouse and have a massive business which requires a significant amount of time and attention to build it to a point at least where mm -hmm. it's going to be able to do that so i think we all make we have to make choices and people don't your your, your definition and what balance looks like for people will be different based on what your priorities are but yeah. i have an incredibly close relationship with with Jack, we spend a lot of time together and I don't want that any other way because what I do now in his formative years of like, let's say two to 10 is going to very much impact the relationship that I have with him when he's 18 years old. I can't not be there between two and 10, expect to be there and him to come to when he's 18 years old. Mm. Was it a very conscious decision to say like, okay, this isn't about me and this is about us as a unit or was it something kind of a biological kick or, or in terms of like, oh, this is something that feels kind of more physical, like a kind of a shift that was unconscious? Um, it's probably a little bit of both. I think it probably comes back to that vision of going, well, you've got kids now, so you're kind of in this, like you've, you made that decision. So you now have this responsibility. So you, you, you kind of you embrace that and go well what does it look like and and the thing the thing about kids that's like really challenging and people will know this that, that have got them is like sometimes all you want to break is for your kids you look at people that don't have kids you like look at the freedom the spontaneity that you've got and, and like, that must be incredible you've got kids and you just want a bit of a break so you can rediscover those years or those times and then you go away for a day or two and they're not there. And you're like, oh, I wish the kids were here. <laughs> it's crazy. Mm. It's a really strange, like mm. paradoxical kind of uh, mindset around it. But it, it happens because the memories that we make and the times that we have together that are special are wrapped in those experiences a lot of the time. So I think it is just a, 
it is conscious and subconscious. I have to provide for you and I consciously want to provide for you. So you've, there's a two-edged approach, I think, within that. Yeah. Do you find it a, like, because this is something, Harry and I are at that kind of time where we're kind of thinking, oh, kids would be, like, so they're on the horizon somewhere. And, like, the kind of, there's so much sacrifice with it as well. And into, especially when you run your business, there's an element of, like, okay, I'm going to have to give this up. And one of the things that I've thought about is, like, okay, do you have to let off a bit of that, um, that focus on me becoming the best I possibly can be and that pursuit of self-development? Or is that um, enhanced by the kind of setting the example for someone that's going to mimic you? Yeah, it's both, again, because I look at it and go, how do I become a world-class dad? Like my default is world-class. How do you become world-class? Like Mm -hmm. what you ever choose to to do. And if I can be a world-class husband and father, then I've taken care of the most important things in my life because what I don't want is a big business and then lose my family. So you kind of prioritize and put those things first. Um, and then within that, it's going well, having kids that wear ours are now, Jack's six name is two. We're in a season where it's actually, we don't have a lot of spare time and we're trying to work and grow the business and, and, and go after the vision of what we want our business to look like. Cara and I work, and my wife and I, Cara, work in the business together. We basically co-founded it. So it's recognizing that, that right now, it's a difficult season. So we can't push that hard in terms of what we want because the kids' needs are greater than ours. So you're right, there is a massive amount of sacrifice. And I could be at home less and I could do other things and we could structure our lives in that way. But let's we make a conscious decision of that's not how we want to be. And we know that that time will come when the kids are more independent. But I know that I can't, as I said before, get this time back once it's gone. And it's such an important part of their development and our family's unit development that we are kind of all in and and jack sees us work he's often says to me dad you always work in and I go, you don't even know the half of it there's some people who work a lot more than what i do um yeah. but he he sees us working hard and he sees us having to put him to bed and go to work and i think he is observing and learning that side of things we've just got to make sure that, that becomes a healthy part of his um mm-hmm. understanding of our life and not something which is like you work so hard and you're not here it's like you work hard and you're here to put me to bed every night yeah, lovely. You you mentioned there about like, okay, I'm going to make the most of this time I have now. And that idea of like Amal Fati, like love your fate. Like this is the one reality that I've got and I'm just going to embrace that. That seems like such a um, such a useful perspective to have because like it's easy to, like the grass is always greener. Like, okay, when this changes, it will be different. When I have this in my life, when I have this freedom, this time, when, um, when he's a little bit older and look after himself a bit more, whatever it is, like that will be different, but it's, it's not reality. Yeah. And it's not easy. Like there's, we often kind of often joke that people think when they've got kids are like, Oh, bedtime, it's bath time and stories. It's like magical. You know, no, it's not. It's the hardest two hours of the day. <laughs> When you've done a full day at work and it's now time to get the kids into bed, it is brutal. Um, but it's, I think it is, and it's constant work. Like I'd love to sit here and go every time when with my kids, like we are the best versions of ourselves and we're perfect parents. It's far from that. But I think it is that recognition that it's a constant reminder to go enjoy what we have now because I, like I, I saw a quote, and I can't remember where, where it was, who it was by. But you know, when, when you're on your deathbed, you would give anything for another day with your kids if you've got a positive relationship with your parents and, and family so it's i don't want to look back on that time and go and this is partly driven by the fact that we had kids quite late like we were married for nine how many like we were basically 
you can't do a maths now. But we were wasting a long time until we had kids. So I'm now 42 and I've got a two-year-old. So I recognize if I had kids at 25, I've got more years. Whereas I've actually, by the time I'm 80, Naya's going to be the same age as I am now, there or thereabouts. So you're like, actually, that doesn't give me that much time. So I'm kind of a little bit on that. I need to claw some of that back so that the experiences that we have during these years, I'm not going to get to that stage and go, oh, I missed out. Because I haven't got another 10 years to play with on somebody who's had kids at 19, 20, 25 years old. Just a quick favor to ask, my friends, if you could head to wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a very kind review, that will not only help my ego virtually explode, but it will help people just like you find the podcast too, and hopefully help them to their next level. I feel like that is a um, a perspective that's really found its utility again. It's like there's it seemed to it's revolutionized the way people think again i don't know what it is i don't know whether it's stoicism that's come back into mm. fashion or um or whether it's people just reading and having this idea of self-development and it's like it seems way more um acceptable and socially acceptable it's less like our oh, fucking self-help books and people like and like trying to <laughs> try all this boring shit and more it's like everyone's genuinely trying to improve themselves but having that perspective of like i'm gonna make the most of this like i may and it sounds morbid as fuck like thinking yeah. about how you're gonna um like your your death and how that relates to your kids and all, all that kind of thing it's, it's a heavy subject but it does it does certainly make you uh make the most of today uh, it reminds me all the time and i don't know if you wanted this to be a conversation about parenting but i'm going to give you a bit more until you change the direction but it's like watching um films now when we've got kids and, and the kid and the, in the story is like in some way dies or is ill or like it hits so different and i saw i forget the guy's name but the newsreader died this week at like 57 years old and it's like you don't have the time you know the time that you think you've got you is not guaranteed so there's people all the time dropping out of this before you would say that their their time is probably due and you're going like i don't want to something was to happen at 55 to me like jack's going to be without me for a significant part of his life so how do i make sure that that time that we do have is is well spent and i know that even if i double down on that i'm not going to get to 55 and go oh, I'm not dead. I wish I'd had that those years back. Of course you're not. Like, it's just, you're going to have that time. And it's, um, it is morbid, but I, we are, we are like finite. So I just think hey, if you're going to have, for me as well, at least have kids, enjoy as much as what we can out of it and try and stay sane in the process because that is the challenge. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. And yeah, I've got uh, my life in weeks post drop, mm. which is just simply crossing off each week until my anticipated date of death, um, <laughs> which is always a good thing to keep in mind. Um, but that is the same kind of thing. It's just like, okay, it's, it's a reminder. It's yeah. a reminder that this is uh, temporary to the best of our knowledge. So you might as well act now how you'd want to carry that on in the future and how you'd like to remember it as. And it's a hard balance, right? Because you kind of go and you could just blow it all now and just go let's live the life and then you 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 struggle later on in life but so i think it is just you've got to find you've got to pace it almost haven't you you can't just blow it all like early doors and expect to die young like because you might you might live to 100 but i think realizing that actually it's the big opportunities and experiences that sometimes we kind of put in our life and go these are our kind of like our bookends or our kind of iconic points um Mm, but i think it's that that piece of going look um 
how do you enjoy what it is now for all that it is and what it is and then hopefully as we go and if we are successful and you have the finances and the lifestyles built to do it you can then start to put in those really cool things that you're going to remember for for a long time yeah absolutely man like the um the phrase i always use in my clients like 10 years from now how will you wish you acted today and i think that's a really nice kind of time frame to go okay 10 years is just about i can just about figure out where i'm going to be in 10 years um but it still keeps you kind of focused on the fact that this is temporary yeah absolutely yeah so so with this um with this pursuit of being like the best father you can be how do you keep yourself on the kind of on track of who you need to become both as a dad but also like in terms of business too like how do you and as, as an athlete and someone who trains yourself, but how do you go, okay, this is my reminder of what I'm aiming at? Oh, um, that's a really good question. A constant process of reflection, I think, um, and staying grounded. Like I actually think there's for all the, I have a bit of a love hate relationship with social media, but for all of the, the hate parts of it, there's a lot of things where you can use it strategically to have the right, influences um exposure to positive ways of thinking and almost like account if you follow the right accounts you can have that accountability kind of checking on quite a regular basis of going just you know I, I quite like the um the motivational accounts because it is that constant thing of going remember what you're working towards prioritize what's important and those i think there's less these days around as kind of like hustle porn of like get up at four o'clock in the morning and go to bed at 11 o'clock at night and it's all about success and going actually what does rich kind of look like and I think Cora and I are extremely reflective I think that's one of the real benefits of having spent so long in a high performance sport environment is that those traits of reflecting on performances and then looking about what that means from future progression is massively valuable so we do a lot of that and we hold ourselves quite accountable to those things we're not huge on goal setting and writing stuff down and, and, and vision boards really because we talk a lot like we talk endlessly about these sorts of things and I think we both Cara and I hold each other quite accountable on those things around where we are in terms of our relationships with the kids how much we're balancing around with work um, and we and that's the kind of I think one of the things we do from a, a marriage perspective is trying to sort of serve each other in that regard so if if like her needs are like my responsibilities and if we can do that and she's doing the same for me then it's quite easy for us to kind of almost hold a mirror up and go look i need you to go and train because that's what you need right now even though it's going to mean that i need to put the kids to bed for the worst two hours of the day but go and do that thing because it makes you a better person and, and she does the same for me so it's not formal and structured because that would be conformist <laughs> but it's um, it's very active and consistent <laughs> Mm-hmm. absolutely what are the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in business uh longevity probably in a sense of what we do now is a iteration of many years of well 15 years of self-employment and we started a new business 18 months ago pretty much so the, the, the kind of the, the serial entrepreneurship is there, trying to find a space within human performance where you can do work that you love, that fulfills you, where you're able to achieve a level of um, impact that you are capable of and that you can become financially 
appropriately rewarded for so that you can actually then build a realistic long long life around the business in terms of income because there'll be lots of very poor strength and conditioning coaches and personal trainers that aren't making any money and then struggle to stay in the industry because they, they can't make a, a long-term career out of it. And it's taken a number of different iterations and a lot of quite, I say quite painful learning processes over the years of having an entrepreneurial spirit, doing business and management at university, coming out of that with a certain amount of ego of going, well, I can run a business because I'm business-minded <laughs> and then realizing actually that you don't really know anything about business and to stay in the in the self-employment game long enough to, to actually have the opportunity to actualize what you believe you're capable of at a level that you desire. That's been the hardest thing, I think, to keep going. When For a lot of times, I try, I've been self-employed in sports performance since day one. I don't think I know anybody else who's done that in, in elite sport. Most people will get a job, go and work for an organization or a national governing body. They have a mentor. They have all the kind of the, the benefits that come with an employer role. And then when they've built a career, do they then step out and then go, now I'm on my own. I'm going to utilize my network that I've built from within these established corporates and organizations to now go and to launch myself. As a self-employed person, I kind of did that from day one without that network to go through so it's been it has been a lot of times felt like pushing a rock up a hill at times with these kind of really big success points along the way to kind of go you're doing really well but you kind of need a lot of things to come together to actually then create a viable successful business which fills or or ticks boxes Mm. across the board rather than just like i'm succeeding really well in an elite sport environment but i'm not getting paid for it particularly well or there's a cap in what I can potentially earn whilst doing that. So it's that's yeah, that's been an ongoing process, something we still strive towards. But this is again like this the game of it. Like, can you stay in long enough? I, I, the picture that goes in my mind is you know is that, that that kind of cartoon where you've got two people digging a tunnel, one yeah. person walking away with a pickaxe on, the other person with the diamonds. I'm an optimist. I'm like, it's coming. It's right there. We, we're right there, um, and that and that is enough to keep me doing what we're doing and, and stay in the game for long enough. I think. Yeah, that's interesting. Like because you, you almost need to balance that um, that that pursuit of like the optimism, the the like the good, the great image of the future, and being able to check, like have that vision of success. Like that's something that comes very easily and naturally to me as well. But like balancing that with the almost pessimist approach of like okay we've got to confront the hard reality and have that kind of um, the yin and yang of this approach and really kind of confronting the cold, hard truth is a different skill set. And for me, didn't come naturally at all and still has to be something that I'm conscious about. Like, is that something you've always had there or is that maybe, I don't know, your, your lovely wife and business partner, is that something that she provides and that is it complementary in that way? Um, I think that, it made me talking there makes me think about like that, that sunken cost fallacy and like knowing when to quit in that pessimism of going actually is it the right time to pivot i think that is actually that's a challenge from a if you're an entrepreneurial person with a vision because it's quite easy just to get sucked into kind of going we're almost there we're almost there and i think for a lot of people there comes a point where it's going it's not going to be what you wanted it to be so we need to pivot evolve adapt and move um so i think i mean we've got quite a good example of what the the hard road into kind of chasing a really big vision looks like Karin's dad was a very successful architect and built a very big business and we see what that cost and what it takes and 
um, and what it, what was required to be able to do that. Um, so I think we we probably, in terms of just balancing that optimism and, and that that pessimism, and going we're almost there and it's not going to happen, is a place where that's just kind of that's that uncomfortable rub between the two of going. Well, what choice do you have? Like, if you believe in the products that you are and the service that you are promoting and selling and, and marketing, and if the the market is indicating to you that that is viable in terms of the commercial opportunity. And I do think there is a bit of just like, you just got to do the hard yards and, and some things you can't accelerate. I mean, to, to build a business, it, mm. from what we've done before, you might after three years start to feel like you've got a foothold. But those first three years, they start off super exciting because it's all branding and naming and kind of like visioning. And you kind of have this early enthusiasm. And then you, you, you hit the hard yards where you actually just got, you've got to grind and turn those gears because nobody is going to come and do that for you. If you are a small startup, couple of people, like this is different if you're kind of going to get big investment and all of a sudden you've got a team. But if you're kind of that solo, solo entrepreneur or, or kind of husband and wife team as we are, like we, you got to turn up and you got to do the work. But if you don't believe that you can do it, like it's mm. not going to go anywhere, right? You go, you have to believe that it's possible. But the realism of going, is this something which could manifest? the numbers will tell you that essentially and the feedback that you're getting in and all the success and the results that you're you're effectively proving mm. that um that naivety is such a good thing to begin with like mm. everyone says it like I, I wouldn't have started this business or, or i wouldn't have started this this pursuit if i knew how difficult it was going to be along the way and there's like i still think i would have done i think that the challenge has been optimal for my development as a person and my growth but like i get what people say when they're like if i'd known the ins and outs of this if i'd known the nights when i would have been like not sleeping for a week at a time because i was just so stressed about what was happening like is that gonna like that was that was awful but like i definitely would have, like would i've started if if i'd known that was going to happen in the future and it's that that naivety is definitely useful to begin with yeah i think picking the road less traveled is like that it's the like the poem that I really like because it's you would do it if you're if you're hardwired that way like I'm unemployable now in the large part because <laughs> you go into an organization all of a sudden you've got to kind of play by the rules it's going actually that doesn't really fit with me like I don't I don't want to do that um so if you I said in our in, a, in another business we'd had for quite some time I was like I'm never doing a startup again it's too it's too much but then you find yourself in a situation where you kind of go do you know what this could be quite a good opportunity i'm excited about it um let's give it a go and then you find yourself back up in a startup life and it is like there's nobody who's in a startup who's kind of built it from the ground up who doesn't know that grind if you if you just if you kind of birth this idea and then you you're manifesting it into something it is it's um it's, it's the hardest thing i think i've ever done but or and um i wouldn't change it if, if someone says to me, oh, go and get a job over there and go and do that thing, like I'm still going to be like, do you know what? I'd rather, I'd rather do that, that work. I'd rather be up late. I'd rather be stressing a little bit about where this thing is going and, and carrying those kind of things. But you, you pay either way, right? You're going, if you're going successful in corporate, they take their pound of flesh from you. I've got friends and, and people, clients mm-hmm. I work with that are corporate lawyers and they work just as hard. It's just that they're doing it under a different kind of environment or circumstance. But you if you want to be successful, you're going to have to put graft in it, whatever that looks like for you and whatever your vision for your life is around that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I had this conversation with Simon Jeffries of, of the natural edge, um, the other day and 
the theme that we always come back to whenever we we talk he's former special forces and obviously been in the marines is that the the path you walk in the military is kind of glamorized as this ultimately difficult task that is the kind of the pinnacle especially special forces like simon and so many others it's just like that is is viewed as like it's so difficult but we both agreed that actually it's a hell of a lot easier than entrepreneurship because okay, the path yeah. is clear you've got yeah. the, the the next steps it's like okay you've got this eight and a half half month program that you're going to go through if you get injured this is what happens like these are the criteria you've got to meet to meet in every exercise this is um your standard of performance to get to the next rank it's all there laid out for you and every sop is there so it's clear whereas like dealing with the unknown is the is the difficult like is this going to work i might commit 18 months to this mm. particular path and like get nothing for it or it might set me back and like that is um, a balance to, to work with. Yeah, I think there's a real cocktail within that of making sure that you're doing the right things at the right times. So we have some business coaching now, which is a massive asset for us because it's, it's, it is that sounding board, that mentorship. And this is where the ego was a change for me before of going like, oh, I'm pretty entrepreneurial. We're just going to build this thing. Well, actually now, why would you, and it, and it is an ego thing because you would never as an athlete just expect that you can get to the Olympic Games by yourself. But I think people are reluctant sometimes when they're starting a business to potentially invest in that. It's much more common now. There's just so many more mentorship opportunities and business coaching than what we had when we started, say, 10, 15 years ago, probably because we know about them more because of social media. But um, having that that support network, that sounding board, that kind of direction of going, these are the things. Because we looked at it and we were we were like, we, we've worked really hard. We've had some success in business before, but not to the level that we wanted. And you see people who have had like multiple successful businesses and you reflect on it and you go, well, it's not because you've had multiple good ideas that you happen to have been lucky with those ideas. It's because you understand the systems of business. So I just, it's not that we have a problem with working. It's more about if you want something that somebody else has achieved before, then why not get them to help you to understand what their system, systematic processes of how to build this thing up so that you can then scale it. Um, and you have to invest in those things. But we were in a service business, so we were very much around, well, that's our startup cost. We invest in, in that support because we haven't got plant and factory and all that sort of stuff. So we're, we're going we're gonna to invest in knowledge and experience. Yeah. If you can shortcut the journey from learning from other people's mistakes, then that's that's a great price to pay in the path. And like that's like that's when I speak to people who are at the beginning of their journey, that's one thing. So I'm like, okay, how can you shortcut this? You don't have to do this all yourself. And it feels like, ego but also like a sense of safety i'm not risking as much by doing it all myself whereas like i've got the financial risk which is when you i think when you've been in it for 5 10 15 years you're like well actually that's a ridiculous thing to think yeah because you know you can if you back yourself to make that investment back right it's just if you're going to go okay it's going to invest in this amount yeah. of, of business coaching support well do you back yourself that you can use that support and you can apply the knowledge that you're going to get to get that money back in the, in the next five to ten years because it might be that you invest in a year or two's worth of coaching and that sets you up for 10 years of an upward trajectory in your business yeah. um well, i think often small business owners and entrepreneurs are scared of spending the kind of money that often is required in some cases um because it's yeah. the, you kind of you're in that poverty mindset like i'm trying to get business off the ground but it's you you're going to pay one way or the other like pay now or pay later essentially yeah pay time or money those yeah. are the two two the currencies you have so take a, an aggressive right turn with this um you talked about it actually as, as some form of segue you spoke about iteration quite a lot there and, and changing like an iteration in terms of 
um, your pursuit of the services that you're providing. So the question I've been really interested in around shoulders, which is also your, your speciality, mm. is like, why is the the shoulder so easy to to fuck up today? And why <laughs> is it such a kind of, a, why why are we making so many mistake, mistakes with it? Uh, okay, so the short answer is, and this is what I say a lot in presentations, is people don't respect the design of the shoulder. So the reason why it gets a bit of a hard time is because it's the most complex joint in the human body. So we are dealing with four joints, which we would then construct, construct as our kind of as our shoulder. So and those four joints, unihumeral joints, scapulothoracic, acromioclavicular, and sternoclavicular joints, all need to articulate and work well in order for the shoulder to function. Now, the, the, the reason that to shortcut through the anatomy around some of that is let's take a CrossFit environment, which is where we do a lot of our work. People are going into that environment without a physical readiness or a preparedness around the shoulder to be able to handle the intensity of the demand that's going to be placed upon the shoulder. So we shortcut the kind of the foundation building piece where we make sure that the shoulder is stable, right? So if one of the, the key things where the shoulder is going to have a challenge is that the humeral head is three times bigger than the socket that it sits on. So for the shoulder to move, the glenohumeral joint, the bone in your upper arm articulating with the scapula needs to move and coordinate and be rhythmical and, and, and start to be able to position the hand in space. That requires a significant amount of dynamic stability. If we have dynamic stability, we can express force. Now, what happens is if that scapula is coming or the shoulder is coming to the table with a little bit of baggage because we have had previous injuries, we spend long, long times sedentary positions, it's difficult to then expect the shoulder to do well when we go, what's on the board for today? It's 100 war balls and 50 snatches and some kipping pull-ups. The shoulder is just not, in most cases, ready for sustained intensity um, at that level without the base level work of being able to actually kind of create a stable foundation from which you can then go and perform at. So there's nothing wrong with doing those things. Like I'm all for CrossFit and all for intensity and, and anything that you want to do with your, with your human body in particular with the shoulder. My kind of challenge is like, how are we preparing the shoulder effectively for the demands that we want to place upon it? And that's why it's having a bad mm -hmm. time is because people aren't doing that effectively. What are the common misconceptions that people have about the shoulder? Uh, that they can just smash it all day long and it will be fine. Um, I think they wonder that it is, it's the same as the hip. It's a ball and socket joint. So we can just train the shoulder like the hip. So five by five or whatever kind of like loading patterns you want to use. The hips are, yes, it's a ball and socket joint, but architecturally, it's also very different to the shoulder. So it's very stable. The hole that femoral head sits inside the acetabulum of the pelvis. There's lots of ligamentous tissue. There's a strong joint capsule. There's a lot of musculature supporting it. And it doesn't have the range of motion that the, the, the shoulder has, even though it does have a significant amount of range. Um, so we just kind of go, well, lower body day, upper body day. We'll just kind of throw all that sort of stuff in the mix. And they just train the lower body the same, or the shoulder the same as the lower body. And then the final thing really is that people forget that every day is shoulder day, whether you are pressing, pulling, um, whether you're doing deadlifts, whether you're doing something for your job. Like I've got a, um, a CrossFit client that both you and I know is a, is a farmer in New Zealand and, and she's out pulling hay bales all day and then doing CrossFit. So mm -hmm. it's, it's recognizing how much load can potentially go through the shoulder in a, in a week, aside from what we would typically label as shoulder day or shoulder heavy workout. 
like cleans and snatches are a shoulder heavy workout. Um, and the, we need to recognize that all of that load and intensity that we want to put onto the shoulder, along with the fact that maybe some people don't have the fundamental base level stability and movement quality to be able to handle those higher intensity type movements, that's when we're going to start to have a little bit of a, a, a challenge in keeping a shoulder moving well and performing in long-term progressive uh, upward trajectory from, from an output perspective. What do you consider more important with the shoulder? Is it like the major muscle groups and their contractions? So I'm thinking lats and pecs and the kind of the patterns that they move in and the stability that they provide, but also the kind of um, the more dominant patterns they perform. Or is it the minor? And I'm going to guess that it's a, a middle ground between the two. But like, where does the... Where does the emphasis need to go? <laughs> um, across the board. So if we take mm-hmm. what a high-performing shoulder is going to need, like we need, and these are, these are all connected in, in different ways and combinations, but we need, shoulder, we need range of motion from the shoulder. We need some level of neuromuscular control, so isolated control around the joint. That shoulder needs to be part of the wider human movement pattern. So let's take, for example, thrusters is a, is a, is a really good example. If we have got a lower body issue, so ankle, knee, hip, or we've got inability to be able to transfer forces through the the core, for want of a better word, that shoulder is going to have a hard time because it's going to try and pick up the slack. Because if if we're only getting, say, we're getting less than optimal drive out of the hips, you still want to go and punch that weight overhead. So the shoulder will try and pick up the slack in those circumstances so having a chain approach to the shoulder and recognizing the shoulder is part of the wider human movement system and training it in a way where both of those or or that whole kind of system is at play is important and then it's also output we still need anterior delts pecs lats kind of the big players that sometimes get labeled around issues around the shoulder they also still need to do their job it's having that kind of I often like it to an orchestra, like it's a symphony. We need all the players to be working together for there to be something mm. which in human movement terms looks effortless and graceful. That's what high quality movement looks like. It looks like it requires less effort to do it. Um, and if we can get that balance right, then we're in a good place. The problem is that most people do end up when they have a shoulder problem, if they're in a strength training kind of uh, history or environment, is they get overpowered and understabilized. So it's not that they're necessarily weak. It's just the relative balance is out. So maybe they are too strong in certain muscle muscle groups and not strong enough in another one, in others. And that means that then the shoulder is just going to have a difficult time staying coordinated with that control um, because of, again, the, 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 the joint is designed for mobility. So stability is, is what comes at a cost there. So we, we need to make sure we can maintain that stability and then be able to express high forces. If you could add only, let's say, three exercises to everyone's shoulder health routine, what would those three exercises be? For the current world, where for a lot of clients that we see, um, some thoracic spine extension, so to get the spine moving a little bit will help with the shoulders getting into a better overhead position. For a lot of people, and there are critics around this on, on social media, and I don't think that they fully understand the landscape of where people's shoulder performance is at, but something around the neuromuscular control around the shoulder, so whether that's rotator cuff work 
or scapular control type work to make sure we can get enough movement in the scapula for this joint to articulate well. So like people will laugh at me when I sort of like refer to external rotation work because everyone who's had a shoulder injury will have done some external rotation work in the past and they, and people will be like, oh, it doesn't work or it's not, it's really boring. It's only part of the puzzle. If you don't have that neuromuscular control joined into something else to, to get the whole system together, then yeah, it is going to only have a limited amount of benefit. So if we put some thoracic spine rotation work in there, uh, sorry, extension work in there, most people will benefit from some rotator cuff work of some capacity and variety, depending on what their issue is. And then I'm going to go something on the gymnastics rings because it just brings everything together. If you can go, let's take a ring push-up. If you can do a decent set of ring push-ups where we're not necessarily leaning on the straps so that we've got some level of dynamic stability demand, you have to control your midsection and the core so that we're now transferring forces from the shoulder to the pelvis because you're now supporting yourself as opposed to lying on a bench and having the bench provide that stability for you then you kind of tick in those boxes of we've got some mobility we've got stability and we've got strength and that those three things are now connected and working together to complement each other then we've got a shoulder which is going to have a decent time mm. love it what do you think about the use of barbells compared to odd objects for shoulder health um all has its place so a lot of my philosophy around training is around play so there was a long time in my um when i was doing a lot of calisthenics where we would literally just go and handstand on anything that we could find beer kegs park benches like anything because it's play and the more awkward you can make your training environment the more let's say athleticism and literacy you gain around your human performance because your body and brain is now kind of got these it can handle more variability so i think if we only ever train with barbells then we're missing a trick in terms of starting to build athleticism through the upper body particularly again based on the, the amount of movement options that the shoulder has mm-hmm. so but then the barbell has a very clear role in strength training so it's 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 blending those things together i think variety is where people start to miss out in their training program because we only use barbells we'll use dumbbells use kettlebells like hang from bars can you cry can you crawl on the floor can you use gymnastics rings like if you want to do the mace work or anything like that then that's all good stuff because it's i think sometimes we kind of go this is the methodology this is the tools that we use and that's how we get strong i'm like that's only that's a very like 20th century way of thinking there's we humans did pretty well from a movement perspective without barbells and they were, they kind of, I don't know, you know, conquered, like, <laughs> say conquered is a bad example, explored new worlds, went to the North Pole, like people were athletic in a different way. And we've, I think we've very much kind of constrained fitness down into a mass market model that happens in a certain environment in a certain way. And then forget that actually the human body is designed to move in far more ways than just doing repetitive movements in a gym. Mm. Yeah, I love that. They're, they're kind of... The rugged approach, the more versatile approach. Um, I love the the phrase you use, literacy, of having that that capacity, and it's almost like being able to to speak the language with um, with a with a higher degree of vocabulary. Like you can have a more complex conversation. Yeah, absolutely, and and it creates more movement options. And I think it's that um, exploration of what can I do, like why, what, what's it like to learn a handstand? Like it's a, it's a hard skill to learn. Um, I think where people go, I can't do that because 
like particularly when you get to I'm 40 as a 42 years old you get to a stage in your life where you're going actually I want to be able to do a lot of this stuff when I'm older and if what, what is 100% true in, in human movement is use it or lose it so if we find ourselves only ever getting good at certain movement patterns don't expect to have the other movement patterns that you haven't trained available to you after five or ten years lots of people have shoulder problems because they're super stiff because they've just done a huge amount of bench press over the years or, or repetitive type movements and all of a sudden they're going to go i kind of want to do crossfit now or you like, you haven't earned the right to go and do crossfit mm-hmm. and that's where they jump in because they're quite athletic and they can go in at a, quite a good level but underpinning all of that the shoulder's not ready for it because it lacks literacy it lacks control and stability even though it's got some output capacity so it's we kind of in the reductionist kind of thinking around it and it challenges the way that people want to train because it we go into a crossfit environment for example and go this is how we do crossfit and it's yeah it's good for part of it but what are we not doing so there is no perfect solution other than being a generalist i think from a human movement and athleticism perspective so the more you can do the more environments you can play and explore the more success you're ultimately going to have when we take away the fact of I need to look a certain way or be a certain body composition to be deemed as a successful athlete. There's a lot of big ripped people that don't move very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they walk into any crosser gym and you will see them. Um, like I can think of, I think every box that I've trained in, I could probably point to two or three, like let's say guys who could bench 120, 130, 140, go into CrossFit and then entered a world of pain, just not having that dynamic stability to, to like, and then it's just, but then there's the ego associated with it as well and taking that step back to go, actually, I'm going to address this from the ground up. And people will often find that they have to do that when there's a big enough problem which stops them from doing what they yeah. want to do. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the benchmarks that we And I've use... been there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the benchmarks we use is like a crab walk. Not benching so 120, but definitely. <laughs> but can people do a well-controlled crab walk? And it's like real simple, just as a ground-based movement that you would have done when you were kids, like playing in the playground or whatever. But it's one that really catches people out because the shoulder just can't move through the ranges of motion. And, and mm-hmm. then we wonder why we're having problems in our ring dips uh, or our, our ring bar muscle ups because we, we're lacking shoulder extension in the crab walk but we want to go and do that explosively as we come into our transition phase and that shoulder can move in the socket and it rides to the front and it's going to start to bang up that anterior shoulder and then that people are going to get pain so it's it's again going back and going where have we missed these pieces of athletic development which are actually helping you to go and participate in a in a really intense athletic environment yeah beautiful man so to give you um an open goal to to finish this uh, podcast on where would where would you recommend people start with with this process? Like, what of um, what what options are available to them if they've a got shoulder niggles and or perhaps like kind of solid injuries that they want to work on and, and get around, or b want to um, prevent further injury from happening or any injury from happening? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and the first thing is to identify the fact that like if you've got a problem and it's been a long-standing problem and it's not getting better, what you're doing currently isn't working. So you need to do something different if you want to get that outcome that, you, that you're looking for. And recognize that from an athletic performance perspective, the weak links in the chain, the things that you're kind of covering up and papering over and, and kind of getting by with and working around are the very things which are limiting your performance potential that you're currently actually striving for. So taking six weeks 
to go and do something around your shoulder could accelerate your progress way further than what you're currently expecting rather in comparison to trying to continue just to kind of like hit that thing for the next six months and make like moderate to meaningless gains because like it's just you can't you're not addressing the root cause of the problem so understand that if you want to do something different you have to potentially change the way that you train for a period of time and, and, and loop back in and see the opportunity to come back better than when you started we see so many like like harriet is a great example right so we did very little strength work when we were doing some work around her her shoulder and she comes back and she knocks out a 65 percent improvement in overhead press from not doing strength work what we did was address the instability issues and the kinetic chain issues and then the brain is like oh this is good we can now go and do that thing and express that force that we've had the potential for but we've held mm-hmm. back on because the system couldn't handle level of intensity so there's games on the table that people are need to recognize we put together a base it's called our base program but essentially it's that six-week block where it's taken of like all the crossfitters and the athletes that we've worked with and gone what is the 80 percent that most people are going to benefit from having in their training program so it's more of like a shotgun type approach our one-to-one personal coaching is a real sniper it goes here's very specific about what you need but if you wanted to get started, if you're sat there going, I've got a niggly shoulder, I can't progress the way that I want to, to go. I'm seeing like constantly flip-flopping between feeling like I've got an injury and feeling okay, but then find myself back on the cliff edge about whether I'm actually going to break down again. Let's take six weeks and bed something into your training program. It's not going to take you away from what you're currently doing. It's just going to complement it and then do something about it and, and be proactive because that is the step out of the current situation that you're finding, which is to do something different and actually give it some some attention. Beautiful, dude. Um, yeah, that is um, high up on my priority list. So thank you for putting that together. Um, and then where can people find out about that and your coaching and everything else you offer? So we are dynamicshoulders.com and you can, our, our most, in fact, primary in social media channels as instagram so at dynamic shoulders and if you want to get in touch with us directly you can book a free call on the on the website you can have a conversation with me directly so if you've got a question around your training your shoulder performance book a call the, the objective there from my side is just to help you to get clarity on your next steps because when i had my shoulder dislocations and, and issues around my early on in my career from the, the rugby background and the surgeries I find it very difficult to navigate my way through that process back to competing and training at the level that I wanted to. So part of what Dynamic Shoulders is about is essentially to help people transition through that phase and make sure they can actually find a way through to do what they want to be able to do, which covers a whole different amount of things from CrossFit specifics. I've got people that are climbing mountains, rugby players, um, all sorts of different things. So it's, it's all on the table. Beautiful, dude. Um, and speaking from secondhand experience, seeing <laughs> the work that the Harry's gone through, like the care and the personal touch that you put in is so impressive. And yeah, it's like um, it differentiates you from a lot of online programs and online kind of movement specialists with the, the level of care you put in. So A, thank you for Harry's uh, recovery and speedy recuperation. But B, um, yeah, it's a it's a shout out to you and who you are and a testament to, to your uh, professionalism within that. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Absolute pleasure, man.